It didn't break for Beto, but something like a blue wave nonetheless reached the shores of Texas Tuesday. What it means for the future of the Lone Star State today on the Texas Standard. Texas Standard is a production of KUT Austin, KERA North Texas, Houston Public Media, and Texas Public Radio in San Antonio. With support from Rand Group, software delivered as promised. No surprises. I'm David Brown. Coming up, analysis of races big and small as Republicans prevail in statewide contests. And as Democrats take control of the U.S. House, they also make inroads in the Texas congressional delegation. We'll hear what this means for the Lone Star State making its mark on Capitol Hill. Plus, reaction from listeners statewide and a look to what this might add up to for 2020. On the day after the midterms, no matter where you are, it's Texas Standard Time. No matter where you are, it's Texas Standard Time on the day after midterms, 2018. I'm David Brown in the Texas capital city. And before we do anything else, let's check the map, shall we? Is Texas purple, you ask? Well, if you pull back a bit and cross your eyes a little, it's a little purpler, some might say. But here's where we stand. Before Tuesday, no Democrat had won a statewide race for office since, well, it must have been about 1994 or so, and that remains the case. However, as Democrats take control of the U.S. House of Representatives, the Texas delegation will be unmistakably younger, more diverse, and more female than it was. And let's look at that map again, shall we? See all those areas of blue? Those are the major metropolitan centers in Texas. Among them, the fastest-growing regions in all of the Lone Star State and in some cases, in all the nation, we're talking about places like Houston and its suburbs, El Paso, San Antonio, Austin, Dallas. And then you see that broad stripe of blue running along the southern border. Well, this hour, we're going to unpack what happened during the midterms in Texas, what they tell us about who we are, the sort of state we're becoming, and what happens next. I'm David Brown. To help explore the big picture, we have assembled a panel of specialists. First, Valerie Martinez. She is director of the Latino and Mexican-American Studies Department and University Distinguished Research Professor in the Political Science Department at the University of North Texas, UNT. Professor Martinez, welcome to the Texas Standard. Thank you for having me, David. I'm glad to be here. Also, Gromer Jeffers. He's political writer of the Dallas Morning News. Gromer, good to talk with you. Good to talk to you, David. Hey, Valerie. Hi. And Liz Marlantis. She is politics editor of the Christian Science Monitor, joining us now from Washington, D.C. Ms. Marlantis, welcome to the Texas Standard. Good to be here. All right, let's begin with uh, what has to be one of the biggest races of the night, uh, if, uh, if not the biggest race of the night, certainly for Texans. The Senate seat held by Ted Cruz, well, he ended up winning, defeating challenger Democrat uh, Congressman Beto O'Rourke, but it was close. Uh, what, if anything, does this say about Texas's demographic, a, a slow shift? What are we looking at? Gromer, let's turn to you first. Well, what it shows first is that a well-funded, dynamic, charismatic candidate with a compelling message can make a competitor run for statewide office. Now, he didn't win, but he came close enough to, to make Republicans at the top of the ticket and down ballot shake. And he had coattails as well. And so the, the hope for Democrats is that if the demographic shifts continue to favor them, which they will, and they continue to build on, on this cycle, that the 
shift, the turning purple and all of that, that that will come sooner rather than later. But, because as you know, David, there was no real hope before O'Rourke's campaign. You didn't see any real signs, but but this was a big sign that changes are underway. But this was extraordinary when it comes to turnout. Uh, what do you think, Professor Martinez? I mean, if you if you want to turn Texas purple, aren't you going to have to have a, uh, a a willingness to vote on on par with what we saw during these midterms? Yes, that's correct. And uh, Beto wrote. O'Rourke ran a very inclusive uh, campaign, a very progressive campaign. Lots of young uh, millennial Generation Z participation, uh, certainly lots of participation by um, uh, identity groups, marginalized groups. They turned out, let me mention one thing. Uh, first of all, I agree with everything the Gromer said, but did you know that Beto won Tarrant County, where I live, which is one of the most conservative metropolitan counties in the country. Mm -hmm. So that was pretty significant. And I think that it does have to do with the changing demographics in Tarrant Tarrant County and Texas wide. Um, You know, Hispanics are the fastest growing population in Texas, and it's growing because of birth rates, not immigration. Uh, There's a statistic that the Pew Hispanic Center puts out, which is just, think about it. Every 30 seconds, a U.S.-born Hispanic turns 18. Mm Mm-hmm. And that's the demographic that's that we are seeing in Texas. That's huge. Uh, Liz Morlantis uh, in, in Washington, uh, politics editor, Christian Science Monitor. Liz, uh, I think a lot of folks at the national level were fascinated by what was going on in this Senate race. What do you uh, credit that to? Is it, it Was it something about Beto O'Rourke and his charisma? Was it something about the, the fact that uh, Texas actually had a competitive race at uh, uh, at, at that level, given uh, the the how solidly red Texas has been, what what do you think was going on there? I mean, I think a lot of it was the personal charisma of Beto O'Rourke, and you know, it was interesting. We saw a number of um, so-called kind of viral candidates this cycle, candidates who caught the attention of the media and got a lot of um, national support. Um, you know, often because of a catchy ad initially, or um, you know, just running sort of unconventional, different types of campaigns, mm-hmm. um, and a lot of them didn't win <laughs> in the end. Um, although, as you point out, O'Rourke's candidacy, I think, still was significant because he got so close. I think, um, in a way, expectations got ahead of where he was, and and if we hadn't had there, there was an expectation over the last week that he might be able to pull it out. Uh-huh. And if that expectation hadn't been there, I think everyone would be talking about O'Rourke as, as almost like a success at this point. Like, wow, he got that close in Texas, um, as opposed to having lost. And, and there is some buzz out there. You look around Twitter, there are people calling for Beto to run for president in 2020. Although I think, you know, a losing Senate race is not the best platform for turning around and running for president. But there's no question that he captured, um, you know, the imagination of many Democratic voters. And, you know, he had people from Michigan donating to his campaign. Um, and, and you know, that was that was clearly something. Yeah, it was an, an enormous war chest. In fact, at one point, some people were saying that uh, given his odds, perhaps he should have spread some of that money around. Uh, I You know, I wonder what happens next for someone like Beto O'Rourke, because he remains congressman. Uh, is is he, in fact, Liz, and, and anyone else, feel free to join in here. Do you think well, that this has now, legs? He doesn't remain congressman no, he has for to much longer. Yeah. He already gave up his seat, and in fact, it was won by a Latina. 
uh, one of the first Latina uh, to go to Congress from Texas will be Veronica Escobar, and she replaces Beto in his seat out there in El Paso. So what? So he doesn't have a, a um, an office. He's going to be running as, a, you know, an outsider, not a, an incumbent of any sort. But without a platform, what happens? I mean, I think about Wendy Davis and all of uh, all of the excitement among Democrats, certainly that that surrounded her candidacy back in what was it? I guess it would have 2014. been two thousand fourteen. Two thousand fourteen, right? Yeah, yeah that's but a good question. this is Gromer. Uh, I'm I'm sorry, uh, but let me say, Wendy Davis was a whole different different situation. She ran a campaign based on her filibuster of an anti-abortion bill, although she had reasons for that, the closing of women's clinics and all of that. But it just never really connected with Texas Republicans and Texas conservatives. This campaign, like, we're talking about better or work a lot, but let's remember also that the president, Donald Trump, had a lot to do with sort of getting this movement, this resistance started. Uh, so, you know, we talked about the other races across the country and the other charismatic candidates. Mm -hmm. It's all a product of the reaction, the aftermath of 2016. And and going into another presidential election, Democrats have a good chance to keep that fire burning because they're not going into another midterm where they generally in Texas have disadvantages. They're going into a presidential election where more progressives, more Democrats, more young folks vote. Uh, and, and in terms of battle, we have to find a way to stay relevant. You're right. Yeah. Is it two years from now running for Senate again? Is it four years for governor? Is it president? I, I agree that losing hurts that that scenario. But we'll see. Well, you know, not, not much time left, but I, I, I guess I have to ask the question that uh, that sort of framed the, these midterms. And that is, was this, in fact, at least in Texas, that referendum on Donald Trump? Well, this is Valerie here, and I would say, yes, indeed, it was. When you look at the public opinion polls, particularly that were taken among marginalized groups uh, that were, you know, that were where Trump was very unpopular, they were voting because they were angry. And so it was a referendum on him. I don't know. It wasn't just him personally, but of course, it was his policies. Immigration is a number one issue for Latinos in Texas and uh, throughout most of the country. And of course, they were very unhappy with the actions that his administration has taken in the separation of families and children. What do you think, Liz? I, I would just add, you know, voters on, on both sides of the aisle said that this election was about Trump. And Trump himself said that this election was about Trump. Mm -hmm. um, you know, he was going around rallies at the uh, in the final days of the campaign saying, I'm not on the ballot, but really I am. You know, I mean, he was perfectly happy to try to nationalize this race. And I think in terms of the way the Senate shook out, that helped. Um, you know, I think I think he he successfully that strategy was a success in terms of getting Republicans some more Senate seats. Gromer. Yeah, I, I totally agree with that. There, it's a interesting battle going on between the folks who are resisting Trump's policies and Trump supporters who are still significant and high, relatively high in number. And we saw that play out in Texas. You know, O'Rourke. His campaign was tremendous, right? But, uh, you know, President, the Trump supporters, Republicans had the advantage. And that's probably why he lost. I mean, Cruz, he's not as likable as the other Republicans on a ballot. But I think when you when you talk about maybe a Greg Abbott and, and a Donald Trump, right. 
they probably pulled uh, Cruz over the finish line, in but, my opinion. We, we, I would agree. This is bad. When you, I'm looking at data, which hasn't been verified, of course, by the Secretary of State. But when you look at the breakdown of who voted, white men were 28% of the vote. White women were about 31%. The white men broke 71% for Cruz. The white women wow. broke 59% for Cruz. But among African-American men and women, mm -hmm. which together were only about 12%, they were 84 and 95% for Beto. Latino men, Latino women who were only 24%, they broke uh, 60 and 66%. So, yeah, yeah, I agree with everything that's Va been said. Valerie Martinez, she's director of the Latino and Mexican-American Studies Department, University Distinguished Research Professor, Political Science Professor at the University of North Texas. Also, Gromer Jeffers, political writer at the Dallas Morning News, and Liz Marlantis, politics editor at the Christian Science Monitor, speaking with us from Washington, D.C. There's a whole lot more ahead. Stay with the Texas Standard. Support comes from Texas Children's Hospital, focused on outcomes and care, and providing treatment to kids in the Lone Star State and beyond for more than 60 years. Texas Children's Hospital, personalized care for every child. More at texaschildrens.org. Support for Texas Standard comes from Rand Group, providing NetSuite ERP solutions built in the cloud. More at softwareaspromised.com. Hey, it's Texas Standard Time on this day after the midterms. I'm David Brown. Let's not quite leave that marquee battle just yet. Yes, indeed, Republican Senator Ted Cruz fended off that serious challenge from Democratic Congressman Beto O'Rourke, but he did so with a smaller than expected margin in a very expensive and closely watched race. Let's hear how it all unfolded. Ben Philpott of KUT Austin was in Houston with the Cruz campaign, but first we're going to head out to El Paso, where KUT's Ashley Lopez was with Team Beto. The night started off hopeful for O'Rourke supporters. Early voting numbers showed O'Rourke with a slight lead, which took a lot of people by surprise. But as the night went on, Cruz would end up winning by several percentage points. I just now had the opportunity to talk to Senator Cruz and to congratulate him, to congratulate him on his victory and to wish him well O'Rourke says the country is as polarized and divisive as he's ever seen it. He says he told Cruz that he and his supporters will do what they can to bring people together. I know that we will continue to work to come together to make sure that we live up to the promise and the potential of this country. I know it because I've met you everywhere that you are. I've listened to you everywhere that you live. But for O'Rourke supporters, his loss was a missed opportunity for a more hopeful future. I feel that we're just creating a further division in this country by not embracing his platform and his ideas for us to move forward. That's Myrna Dalton. She says that as an immigrant, the issue of immigration prompted her support for O'Rourke. Dalton traveled from Austin to El Paso with a broken foot. She says she knocked on doors for O'Rourke back home in the hopes he would win. So it didn't turn out the way we had hoped, but, um, you know, it's we'll feel bad for a little bit and then, you know, we'll just dust ourselves off and go back to knocking on doors and what we do. And Marisol Rodriguez from El Paso, who also helped the campaign, says she's also disappointed, but it's not all bad. I heard a lot of great stories throughout this whole campaign, a lot of first-time voters ever, a lot of people coming in, volunteering from all over this country and even different um, 
other countries as well. So it just brought a lot of people together and there's a lot of good that came from it. But at least for last night, Rodriguez says she just needed some comfort food. I'm going to go to Whataburger and get a green chili double. <laughs> I'm Ashley Lopez for the Texas Standard. And I'm Ben Philpott in Houston. While Democrats tried to find a silver lining in a close race, there was almost no mention of how close the race had actually been at the Cruz party. The senator's father, Rafael Cruz, came out on stage and told the crowd Texas had stayed solid red. And when Cruz took the stage, it was as if the entire state had voted for him. Texas came together behind a common sense agenda of low taxes, low regulations, and lots and lots of jobs. And of course, this was a victory party. Winners aren't supposed to temper the win based on how close it was. Cruz supporter Mark Brown says there will be time for the state GOP to think about races lost. But even with Cruz losing in urban and suburban areas, Brown says there's a bright red firewall that brings GOP victories. There's so many small towns in Texas that do show up to vote in these things. I was never really worried about Ted. Beto ran a good campaign. He was very positive, which was very respectful. But in the long term, his pol- it's the policies that matter the most. And that's where Ted Cruz won most of the Texans. Now it's back to D.C. for Cruz, where he'll spend the next six years working and possibly waiting for the 2024 presidential election. Ben Philpot, Houston. Support for coverage of business on Texas Standard comes from Texas Mutual Insurance Company, a workers' comp provider ensuring compassionate care for injuries of every size at businesses big and small. Learn more at WorkSafeTexas.com. And you are listening to the Texas Standard. Well, here's another major takeaway from Election Day results. It's a time of turnover for Texans on Capitol Hill. Fully one quarter of those Texans in the U.S. House of Representatives will be newcomers in 2019. As the Standard's own Michael Marks reports, they'll bring with them fresh ideas, new perspectives, and a certain lack of inside-the-beltway experience. 196 years of experience, to be exact. That's the amount of time the nine outgoing Texans in the House of Representatives had collectively compiled in Congress. The turnover comes thanks to six retirements, two upsets, and one failed Senate bid. According to Mark Strand, that's an unusually high amount of institutional knowledge going out the door. I think this is going to be an inordinate hit uh, for a state going from very high influence to one that's taking a back seat. Strand is the president of the Congressional Institute, a nonprofit designed to help members of Congress better serve their constituents. He also worked as a staffer on Capitol Hill for over two decades. So he's seen the difference between the effectiveness of a new member of Congress and an experienced one. In terms of legislation offered on behalf of local communities, you know, having someone who's more advanced in the committee means it's more likely to get done because you need a little power to get anything done of significance. Consider Texas's 11th congressional district. The district is represented by Mike Conaway, a Republican who chairs the House Agriculture Committee. Part of his job is to write the farm bill. It's a massive piece of legislation that governs rules about crop subsidies, regulation, research initiatives, as well as food stamps and other nutritional programs. Strand says having a Texan in that job is a big advantage for the state. First of all, because he's the one who writes the bill and presents it to the committee. But second of all, because other members on the committee who want things don't want to offend the chairman. (laughs) Now, with an incoming Democratic majority in the House... Conaway will not hold a chairmanship in the next Congress, but neither will any of the freshman representatives. 
Newcomers have no chance of chairing a committee right off the bat. They don't have the political clout, the know-how, or the time. Well, the things that stick with me is that you are overwhelmed with so many meetings, uh, so many uh, volumes of stuff that you have to read to be up to date on hearings coming up. And when you are a new one, it's going to take time. That's Solomon Ortiz, a Democrat from Corpus Christi who served in the House for 28 years. Among his biggest accomplishments for his district? Interstate 69 is one of them. In Texas, part of the interstate runs through Corpus Christi and the Rio Grande Valley. But originally, the plan was for it to run more west from Corpus to Laredo. Which it wasn't bad. But like I told my constituents and I told many friends, I don't represent Laredo. I represent the valley. It took Ortiz about seven years of working the system to get the interstate moved in a way that was more advantageous to his district. He tapped into relationships he'd cultivated, bringing representatives down to his district to explain why the interstate needed to run through the valley. In the end, he got what he wanted. And I wondered, is this the kind of thing he could have done earlier in his career? No, it takes time. It, it, it takes time. And in Congress, time is what Texas is losing. That may be okay with voters who wanted to bring in fresh blood at the expense of long-tenured lawmakers, but it does have its consequences, particularly for a state with a Republican-heavy delegation and a Democrat-led House of Representatives. Sean Theriault is a political science professor at the University of Texas at Austin. There are just far fewer Texas representatives in Congress uh, who are Democratic than who are Republican. And so the number of people who are rising through the ranks and ultimately becoming committee chairs is, is Texas is going to be hurt because we just have fewer Democrats uh, in the Texas delegation than we used to. Right now, Texans chair seven committees of the House of Representatives, the most of any state. It's unclear how many chairmanships Texans will hold in 2019 when Democrats assume control of the House. But the figure promises to be much lower. For the Texas Standard, I'm Michael Marks. Support for Texas Standard comes from the Texas Tuition Promise Fund and the Texas College Savings Plan, administered by the state of Texas, offering a pair of plans that can help families save toward college dreams. More at savenowforcollege.org. From the Texas Standard Newsroom, I'm Becky Fogle with a roundup of news from across the state. After last night's midterm elections, Democrats still haven't won a statewide office in Texas since 1994, but that party made key gains in a couple of the state's congressional races. As of last night, Democrats pulled off two upsets of Republican-held U.S. House seats. One was in the Dallas area where civil rights attorney and former NFL player Colin Allred defeated longtime GOP Congressman Pete Sessions. During his victory speech, Allred said, we're all in this together. As John Lewis would say, we live in the same house. We're all Americans. Absolutely. We're all Texans. And starting tonight, we're going to start acting like it. Sessions has represented the 32nd Congressional District since 2003. Another upset last night was in the Houston area. Republican Congressman John Culberson lost the seat he's held since 2001 to Democratic challenger Lizzie Panel Fletcher. As Houston Public Media's Elizabeth Trofall reports, Fletcher won the 7th Congressional District, which Republicans have held for over 50 years. A smiling Fletcher took the stage at a local watch party, declaring victory in her fight to unseat Culberson, a nine-term incumbent. 
Fletcher was elected by a narrow margin in a district that hasn't gone for a Democrat in more than 50 years. Fletcher says she's looking forward to working on bipartisan solutions when she begins her term and keeping a check on President Trump and the executive branch. And I think the Democrats taking back the House is an important step in the House performing its constitutional function. It's something that, frankly, we haven't seen a lot of in the last two years. And I think that's something that the American people have made very clear with this election that they want. Fletcher, a lawyer by profession, will also be the first woman to represent District Seven. In Houston, I'm Elizabeth Troval. Lizzie Panel Fletcher is one of several women joining the Texas congressional delegation after yesterday's election, and two are making history. Democrats Sylvia Garcia and Veronica Escobar rode landslide victories to become the first Latinas Texas is sending to Congress. University of Texas at Austin lecturer Victoria De Francesco Soto says this is a watershed moment for Latinas. And what Sylvia Garcia and Veronica Escobar really represent, and I know it sounds corny and it may sound overused, but they are trailblazers because they are literally blazing a trail for other Latinas to say, hey, I can do that too. Garcia will represent the Houston Area 29th Congressional District. Escobar of El Paso will represent the 16th District in the U.S. House. That's look at news from across the state. I'm Becky Fogel for the Texas Standard. Support for these Texas Standard headlines comes from the law firm of Baron Adler Clough and Odo, handling eminent domain and condemnation cases throughout Texas, protecting private property rights for over 30 years. BaronAdler.com. 33 minutes past the hour, Texas Standard Time. I'm David Brown. We mentioned earlier in the show, Texas Democrats picked up at least two U.S. House seats last night that were for a long time held by Republicans. There's still a question mark over that huge district that spans the strip of Texas from Bear County to the outskirts of El Paso. We're talking about the 23rd Congressional District. Republican incumbent Will Hurd has declared victory with a 682-vote margin, all of the precincts reporting. But Texas Democratic Party Chair Gilberto Hinojosa says Hurd's opponent, Gina Ortiz-Jones, will call for a recount. Now, Texans hold seven committee chairmanships in the U.S. House with a power shift to Democrats. How does that affect Texas's footprint on Capitol Hill? Abby Livingston may know a thing or two about that. She certainly does. In fact, she's a Washington, D.C. correspondent for the Texas Tribune. She's been keeping a close eye on all these congressional races during this Texas midterm. Good to have you back on the broadcast, Abby. Thanks for having me. All right. So uh, let's talk about the big kahuna here. Uh, Representative Kevin Brady of the Woodlands. He was President Trump's point man on tax cuts. This was, uh, you know, President Trump was counting on Brady to push through uh, this middle class tax cut. He'd been dangling that before voters in the final weeks before midterms. Uh, What happens to Kevin Brady? What happens to Ways and Means? And what does that mean for Texas? Well, he becomes a ranking member. He is he will no longer be chairman because the Democrat I mean the Democrats have taken over. So, um I, I can I can't speak specifically to Kevin Brady, but we have several other instances of that. For- and it's uh, of chairman who will become ranking members, and it's a lot less fun to be a ranking member. Yeah, um, yeah. I guess and, uh, you've got uh, Matt Thorn, uh, Mac Thornberry of uh, Clarendon. He's losing the chairmanship of what House Armed Services, right? Correct. Um, and uh, Michael McCall could be in a position. He's been termed limited out as Homeland Security. He could be up for another chairmanship. <clears throat> Excuse me. There's a handful of others, but. 
Um, the, the thing is, is this is, this is returning back to not, it, it is just so not fun to be in the minority and this could portend to possibly retirements coming. Uh, we saw a whole bunch last, uh, this past cycle and there could be more coming because, uh, this is just not an enjoyable existence. And these guys may say, you know, I'm, I'm kind of done with this, but I can't, I don't have any specific reporting about Brady or anyone else. Right. I understand. Uh, one of the bigger races that folks are talking about on this, uh, day after, uh, Colin Allred, the former NFL football player upsetting uh, Republican incumbent Pete Sessions in that congressional district 32. Sessions also had a chairmanship, right? Absolutely. He was the rules chairman, which is one of the most powerful jobs on the Hill. It's sort of the last committee that looks at all pieces of legislation and readies it for capital, uh, for the House floor. Um, I, I don't know if I would call it an upset at this point. There was um, it, it was it was perceived to be a tight race and mm-hmm. in the last few days. It really seemed to break open for all red. Um, and so this is the, uh, Sessions was probably the most ambitious member of the Texas House delegation. He had his eye on leadership. You know, I think he viewed himself as possibly a future majority whip or majority uh, leader or speaker. And that's over. And so this is I, I, I know that there's probably the the interest is on, on the Senate race, but we are really having um, quite a few tremors uh, down ballot uh, based on last night. Let's talk about uh, John Culberson. He's been a congressman for District 7 for what is it now? Nearly two decades, I guess. Uh, what does what does that mean for Texas's congressional delegation? Well, this one is really interesting because he is a member of the Appropriations Committee, which is the committee that decides how to spend money uh, in the federal government. And he was selling that as this was he was the right man at the right time because this district, the seventh of Houston, was hit very badly by Harvey. And so Houstonians basically said, you know what, we're okay giving up that powerful position. We're ready for change. And so that could have implications with future Harvey aid funding. Um, Lizzie Panel Fletcher has expressed to me an interest in one day serving on appropriations, but that is not a committee assignment that they usually give to freshmen. So it, it is going to be a very um, interesting way. How do they pick up the slack? How do they leverage their power? Because Culberson was pretty effective at working with uh, Democrats and Floridians in kind of joining together to, to move legislation through the Appropriations Committee. Uh, I have to ask uh, about whether there are any winners for Democrats among the Texas delegation. I was thinking about uh, uh, Eddie Bernice Johnson. Well, she's basically the only one we expect to actually assume to a chairmanship. She would probably take over the Science, Space, and Technology Committee, which was chaired by another Texan, Lamar Smith, a Republican who's retiring. It's not the fanciest, most, uh, I guess, sexiest committee to to chair, but it does oversee NASA, which is really important to um, uh particularly Houston. So um, it's going to be a a very different day for Texas. Um, The Democrats uh, in the delegation are either very young and not don't have the seniority to be a chairman or um, they're just not on that track. So she's sort of the lone wolf at this point. Abby Livingston, Washington, D.C. correspondent for the Texas Tribune. There's more ahead as the standard continues. Support for Texas Standard comes from Texas CASA, advocating for a safe and positive future for all Texas children in the child protection system. Volunteer information at becomeacasa.org. Every child has a chance. It's you.
Hey, you got her tuned to the Texas Standard on this day after midterm elections 2018. I'm David Brown. Great to have you with us. Now let's continue our live coverage with a couple of Texas analysts to help us digest yesterday's results from a more partisan perspective, I suppose you might say. Executive Director of Progress Texas, Ed Espinoza, is here in uh, the studio. Good to see you again, Ed. Hello. Good to see you. And Republican strategist Jennifer Sarver is also here. Jennifer, welcome to the Texas Standard. Thank you for having me on. All right. Well, let's begin with you, Jennifer, if you don't mind. Uh, you know, uh, Republicans maintaining their stronghold uh, statewide uh, last night, but some very close margins in the U.S. Senate race and some statewide races and then some upsets in the U.S. House. What are your big takeaways from what you saw last night? Are you cheering or are you feeling a little blue? I am a Republican who wants to see my party uh, tick back toward the center. So I actually think last night was an interesting night for those of us who want to see a bigger tent in the Republican Party hmm. um, because we saw some competitive races. We had people had to fight for our ideas. And wouldn't that be a nice idea, right? Mm-hmm. Us fighting over ideas, talking about why we have better ideas for the state instead of tearing people down. And what you look at what's happening in the, in the legislature, at least, I think the lesson should be we need to have a bigger tent. And you think about Governor Abbott winning, but also so the two people he campaigned against right. in the primary also winning. You look at seats that we lost in the Texas legislature because some of the candidates were just too extreme. I think that should tell us a lesson that we need to have a bigger tent and allow for, for more diversity of idea on my side of the aisle. Ed, are you cheering or not so much? Uh, I have mixed feelings this morning. Uh, obviously, this, at the statewide level, we'd hope to perform better. And, and in fact, you know, we, in, compared to previous years, we did perform better. Uh, Beto O'Rourke was uh, really a special candidate who performed in a way that we haven't seen a statewide Democrat do here in decades. I think he came, was the final count, maybe about 200,000 votes away from winning a Senate seat in in, uh, Texas. That's big news. Um, Pretty much every down-ballot Democrat outperformed uh, the races that we had four years ago as Mm -hmm. well. Mm -hmm. And uh, at the local level, at the legislative level, we picked up I believe it was 12 seats in the Texas legislature. The margin is now eight an eight-seat margin, 16 seats, eight to swing it in the Texas legislature. That yeah. That is, uh, I, I don't know that I've seen a swing that big in Texas, and I've been working here for about a decade. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and two seats in the state Senate as well. Well, let's, talk, let's focus in on the Pink Dome if we can. I mean, mm-hmm. Democrats gained uh, 12 Texas House seats. Mm-hmm. Uh, specifically, uh, we saw uh, uh, Ron Simmons. Uh, he was uh, uh, Ron Simmons uh, lost uh, there, and Ron Simmons, by the way, authored a version of that bathroom bill that we all remember from the last legislative session. Matt Rinaldi, vocal member of the House Freedom Caucus, uh, but over in the Texas Senate, Republicans uh, Don Huffines and Connie Burton uh, also lost their seats. Mm-hmm. Uh, Jennifer, uh, what do you? How do you see these Democratic gains in in the state house, and what did they mean for Texas Republicans as you see it? Yeah, I think one of the things to look at is where are those seats and where are those pickups, and I think we're looking at that urban suburban divide. Yeah, 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 geographically, and we continue to look at that map, and you see all of the cities in Texas are bright blue, and the rest of the state is red, and for Republicans to continue to win, we're going to have to do more to reach out to urban voters. We're going to have to moderate our message in some places and be willing to listen to other ideas. And and like I said earlier, a fight about those ideas, not you about know, people. You know, so much was made about suburban voters and about women in the suburbs, and in particular, college-educated white folks. Uh, is that the key here in Texas right now? Is that who is, uh, whoever controls those suburbs, is that where the action is right now or I, not so much? I mean, we have a lot of gem- demographic shifts as well. Yeah, I, I don't think there's one silver bullet 
to to fix all of this. Mm-hmm. I think that Texas is so big and it's so diverse. And the tides change every two years here. We didn't know who Beto O'Rourke was two years ago. Mm-hmm. We didn't know we'd be in this situation four years after Wendy Davis. Uh, things change so quickly. What you really need in Texas is something that can that, that is steady and appeals to a broad range of people from a broad range of backgrounds. I'm encouraged by what Jennifer has to say about wanting her party to be more inclusive and more uh, more responsive to growing areas. And I think that's important. I think the Democratic Party has tried to do that for years. And, you know, one thing I think is important is we talk about, like, the blueberry and the tomato soup, and I've never liked that expression because I don't think it's accurate. Um, one, I think that, this, like Jennifer said, the cities are blue. It's not just Austin. It's the cities. Right. And the other thing is is that those those dots are growing. Like, you, you mentioned the suburbs. Right. The, 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 they're spreading out to larger areas, and part of that's just a fact of life with growing population but also with factors in things like affordability and transportation and issues that aren't necessarily ideological ones, but but play into how people vote. Uh, I think that those are the kind of issues that we want to factor into a lot of the other uh, ideological stuff. Well, we this is about. an interesting thing, because I, how do you think Texas voters, what do you think Texas voters were voting on? Was it about Trump? Was it about health care? which is something that's been... Was it about immigration? What were the issues? You're smiling there, Ed. The answer is but yes. W- <laughs> for, but what, what, what do you see as the leading issue? And is there a takeaway when it comes to the issues that matter the most to Texans as a result of yesterday? You know, when you look at Texas Tribune polling over uh, over the course of years, and they, they look at like what the, what the top issues are that are moving people, the number one issue always has like 17%. People are just so diffused across the board that you can say it's healthcare because it is healthcare. Public education, absolutely. Property taxes, transportation, immigration. Uh, feel like I'm missing one in there, but they're, they're Trump. They're all part of the issues. I, I guess the, the thing is, is can you find somebody that people identify with and believe in and will vote for? And unfortunately, I, I wish it was easy as saying it's one issue. I think in past years it has been. I don't think in this year it was. Jennifer, I, I, forgive me for interrupting, but I'm thinking about the fact that Dan Patrick still maintains his supermajority hold in the Texas Senate. Uh, if you're Dan Patrick and you look at what, you know, you look at the outcome of Tuesday, what's your takeaway? That, that, that you need to hold the line or that you need to be more moderate? Well, I think that Dan, Dan Patrick will not take the message to be more moderate. I think that Texas is a conservative state. We have conservative values. And we used to have conservative Democrats. Um, and it used to be okay to be a moderate Republican. And I think that one of the things I'm concerned about is polarization of both parties. And everybody talks about that. But the more extreme we get on either side of the aisle isn't good for Texas. And it's not good for new voters. I mean, I think one of the most exciting things about last night is this civic engagement. That we almost reach presidential level turnout is phenomenal. Mm-hmm. And we should be excited by that. Now, what Republicans should be concerned about is, according to Pew, only 12% of millennials consider themselves conservatives. So if we're going to get that next generation, mm-hmm. we've got to start talking to them in language that makes sense to them and share our ideas about why personal responsibility and liberty and freedom are good things for us and not fighting about all those divisive issues um, that are turning young people off. Because I'm, I'm worried about what does a Republican Party look like in 10 years, in 20 years, in 30 years. And if we continue down this path with hatred and division as a leading message, there won't be a Republican Party. Well, you're pointing to something. Let's just do the math here. I mean, let's take the U.S. Senate race. About 8.3 million votes cast in that race, a little more than 27 million people in Texas. 
Is the state still a non-voting state after all of that or what? I think we're trending toward a voting state. I mean, last numbers showed that we are 47th in voter turnout, which is abysmal. Mm -hmm. You never hear our state leaders talking about that, and they should. And I don't think Republicans should be afraid of more people voting. And the lesson we should take from this is we need to talk to more voters and engage more voters and get more people excited about our ideas, not try to keep people home, but to fight about the ideas and get them excited about what we have to offer for the future. And yeah, we're still a non-voting state. Last night was great. We the turnout we saw over the past few weeks was fantastic, but think about the hole that we were in. You know, Harris County, Dallas County, we had great turnout. We can do a lot better as a, as a percentage of voting age population. We'll get there, but it will happen over time. Ed Espinoza, Executive Director of Progress Texas, Republican strategist Jennifer Sarver. Thank you both for coming in. Thanks for Thank having you. us. Support comes from Texas Children's Hospital, focused on outcomes and care, and providing treatment to kids in the Lone Star State and beyond for more than 60 years. Texas Children's Hospital, personalized care for every child. More at texaschildrens.org. This is the Texas Standard. I'm David Brown. As results poured in last night, commentators tripped over themselves. Did the race for 2020 begin yesterday? Does it begin today or has it been going on for a while now? Well, two years from now, the country will go to the polls again to elect a president, right? It's the prize both parties want desperately, of course. But what can we say, if anything, about 2020 as we look at the results of yesterday? Todd Gilman is Washington bureau chief for the Dallas Morning News. He's in Houston today where he attended last night's Ted Cruz watch party. Todd, great to have you back on the broadcast. Uh, it's good to be with you. All right. So how are things in Houston? Uh, did uh, <laughs> What was your sense of what happened uh, with uh, at the Ted Cruz uh, event? And uh, uh, what do you think it says about uh, about Texas politics going forward? Well, there, uh, obviously, the, the, the Cruz supporters and Cruz himself and his staff were thrilled at the outcome. Um, it was a pretty close race. It was the closest victory for a Republican uh, running and winning a Senate seat in Texas, I think maybe ever, back to John Tower um, wow. in the 60s. I mean, certainly decades and much, much closer than Cruz's victory six years ago. Texas is changing. Um, and Beto O'Rourke was part of the uh, catalyzing that change. Uh, it's, it's a pretty closely divided state, but it is still a predominantly Republican conservative state, not a predominantly uh, Democrat progressive state. So, you know, clearly this, this was the place to be if you wanted to be happy as opposed to in that stadium in El Paso, mm -hmm. uh, at least as far as the outcome was concerned. I happened to be in the same hotel where the uh, where the victory party for Cruz took place, and I was down the hall from what ended up being a rather noisy and raucous <laughs> yeah. VIP after party. I bet. Yeah, I bet. But let's, let's uh, seriously look at 2020 here. What does the outcome of this election tell us, if anything, about how Texans may feel uh, two years from now, or is there any way of, of, of drawing those conclusions? Well, I, I think that it's a pretty safe bet that if in, in a year when, well, midterm elections always punish the president, it always punish the president's, uh, uh, party. So if Texas wasn't going to flip this year, it is not likely to flip in 2020, uh, the the fans of President Trump are still out there. You know, anything could happen in politics, and certainly anything can happen in the Trump 
White House and administration, and two years is more than an eternity in Trump world. Uh, but based on last night's results, Texas remains a Republican state in presidential elections, uh, at least for the foreseeable future. Now, is it getting closer and closer? Does it depend on who is on the ballot for the Republicans and who is on the ballot for the Democrats? Right. Beto was the guy who brought it this close. I don't think there's any other Texas Democrat who could have this year. Uh, and it really hinges on what the lineup is in 2020. But, you know, at, at this point, snapshot, uh, I, I wouldn't bet that the Democrats managed to win Texas in in 2020 you know, and, and it's 38 electoral votes. You know, I, I have to ask, though, about this aspect of the race. And th there has been some divergence of opinion when it comes to just what it was that uh, uh, that might account for Beto O'Rourke's uh, showing, which was strong, even if he didn't win. Uh, remarkably so. Uh, do you run if you are a Democrat and you want to make an impact in 2020? Is the lesson that you don't play it safe like arguably Wendy Davis did in 2014, that you embrace uh, left-wing causes proudly, that that, uh, that you wave the flag for the more left-of-center uh, side of, of the Democratic Party, or not? Do you, do you run as a centrist? I mean, is there anything that can be divined from the way that Beto O'Rourke ran this race that might inform Democrats looking at 2020? Well, it's a really interesting question. Uh, we, we heard a lot of campaign consultants, polit politicians, strategists using the phrase, the, the term authenticity to talk about Beto. Um, he, he was not shy about saying extremely liberal things. Um, he, he wants to have uh, citizenship for illegal immigrants right away, for instance. He was not uh, out there stumping on the idea of impeaching President Trump, but he never shied away from the fact that he believed that Trump should be impeached. Um, the, these positions were, um, they were not calculated by, by uh, Beto as far as I can tell. They were what he stands for. Um, but if they were calculated, um, you could say that they were calculated to gin up support by liberals and at the risk of also stirring up opposition from conservatives. So we have seen Wendy Davis and we've seen uh, other centrist Democrats running statewide in Texas and falling far short right. because what Texas voters really want is an authentic uh, something. They don't want a wishy-washy. Right. So the, the young voters this year got very excited about Beto and his progressivism, but there are a ton of conservative voters who really want to stick yeah. with Ted Cruz yeah. and his conservatism. Todd, we are flat out of time. Todd Gilman, Washington Bureau Chief for the Dallas Morning News, speaking with us today from Houston. Todd, thanks as always. And you are listening to the Texas Standard. Social media editor Wells Dunbar monitoring the talk of Texas. Yeah, today. lots of talk in Texas today. We have a robust discussion going on our Facebook page about last night's election results. Lots of people sounding off some 50-plus comments last time I tuned in there. Shawnee Krishna Brown says she is disappointed, but not 2016 disappointed. She says that the Beto O'Rourke Ted Cruz race was tight. It proves to me that Texas is not a red state, but a state that does not vote. She says, I have faith that 2020 will bring more change. Also, Amanda Cavazos Weems 
says the real news is that this is the real news lies in the state house and state senate races far-right candidates had a bad night including one of the authors of last session's so-called bathroom bill noting that they will not be returning to the 2019 legislature mm-hmm. and yeah lots of really interesting stuff uh sort of a little bit further down ballot we didn't see any losses among any of the statewide candidates mm-hmm. but uh but we did see the the, the composition of the texas legislature is True. changing and also these uh these countywide races in harris county just a decide sweep uh, for the Democrats there. Even uh, North Texas and former real conservative strongholds uh, turning up big, big numbers for O'Rourke and, and uh, displaying that sort of down-ballot uh, effect on a bunch of the other Democratic races. So much to talk about. I should work in a quick plug here for our newsletter, which we just sent out earlier today. You can sign up for it at texasstandard.org, where I believe uh, David Brown himself there has a little analysis of the midterm elections oh, not there. Much. Just, uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, but of course, I uh, one of the interesting things uh, about this race, I think, is is what it tells us about uh, the, how the politics in this state. I mean, it, this state became a, an urban state back in the mm-hmm. 1950s. Now we are seeing how that is making itself manifest politically, and it's hardening. Uh, it's a it's it's a really interesting uh, uh, yeah, trend really incredible election, here. and you know we're still talking about a nail biter. We're still waiting for a definitive end to the congressional district twenty three race right. there. That with Gina Ortiz Jones going back and forth with uh, the uh, incumbent there, uh, Will Will Hurd Will Hurd up at last part, but at one point they called it, then the AP uncalled it. Well, there's going to be a recount as you <laughs> yeah. may have heard. Yeah, that's so. the latest news recount there in d- district twenty three. Obviously, this is a developing story, one that we continue to follow. You can keep up with everything at texasstandard.org. And of course, we urge you to join us again tomorrow. On behalf of the entire Texas Standard team, I'm David Brown wishing you a wonderful Wednesday. Philanthropic support for Texas Standard comes from Casey and Scott O'Hare, the Winkler Family Foundation, Lynn Dobson and Greg Waldridge, Adrian Killam, the George Huntington Family, and St. David's Foundation. Additionally, Texas Mutual Insurance Company is a founding sponsor of Texas Standard. PRI Public Radio International.